This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. A very good morning to you. We are talking exit tickets today. What are they? What is the point of them? And what do they achieve? Join me as I go into one of my shallow dives on this um, piece of practice that is becoming increasingly popular once again. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the podcast and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. It is Saturday, the 24th of June, 2023. This is our penultimate Saturday morning breakfast together before I go off for my summer break in July. So we've got a show today. We've got a show next week. Then I'm taking a few Saturdays off before we come back in August. We are quite hay feverish today, I'm not going to lie, so I apologise if I am sounding a little bit more stuffy than usual, and I apologise if I might need to mute myself at various intervals throughout the show today in order to sneeze. I figure that is better than you guys having to listen to me sneezing. Um, I'm not quite sure what's going on, because I haven't had um, high pollen alerts. My computer normally tells me when it's going to be high pollen, but today it's just saying that it's partially sunny. Um, when in fact we've got blanket cloud cover right now. Um, so maybe my computer is not to be trusted. But I am fe- feeling more hay feverish than usual. I've got the itchy eyes, I've got the runny nose, I am sneezing. And it's very odd because up until now, when all of the kids um, that I teach who suffer from hay fever have been suffering through it. I've been absolutely fine. It seemed to have been quite bad over the last few weeks um, for a lot of my students, and, and I've been absolutely fine. But now that they seem to have mellowed out a bit, it's my turn. And I was talking to one of my sixth formers about it this week, and we were trying to figure out why. Um, because we know it's all to do with the body fighting off what it perceives to be a threat and the histamines and and all that jazz. But we weren't sure why it happens every single year. We weren't sure why your body doesn't get used to fighting it. Um, In the same way that, for example, with vaccines, your body gets used to fighting off those, um, those bugs, those, those intruders, those threats. So nobody knows um, I'm, I'm aware that I could Google this. Um, <laughs> that is what Google is for. But if anybody does know and would like to share their wisdom with me, I would be very grateful. You can, of course, interact with the show in many different ways. If you are listening live via Podbean, you can stin, and please do. If you've got anything to say on anything that we talk about today, if you are listening live on Podbean, you can also call in. Uh, I am always happy to take callers as long as they are relevant to the subject that we are discussing. If you are listening elsewhere live or you are listening on playback, whatever point in time you are listening, you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester, M-I-D-L-E-S-T-E-R. That's all one word. 
Because as I say every week, the things that I talk to you about are things that I find interesting in education. They're things that I think are pertinent. They are things that I think are relevant. Um, and these things are not going anywhere. So I will always be happy to engage with you in these discussions, so long as I'm teaching. So, you know, if it's 2033 right now and you are listening back to this show because exit tickets have looped back around into fashion again for the 18th time in 10 years, um, and I am still tweeting about how we can get kids to engage better with learning foreign languages, and you want to weigh in on exit tickets, please do. Um, and if I'm still on the show, I will be more than happy to, um, to have you on and discuss that with you. Gosh, that's quite a thought, isn't it? To wonder whether we will all still be here on a Saturday morning in 10 years' time in, what is it, 3,650-odd Saturdays, um, or 520, I suppose. Um, are we all going to still be teaching? Are we all still going to be listening? Are we still going to be having these same debates. It's an interesting thing, time, uh, because it goes so quickly and so slowly. I've been thinking about this over the last 24 hours. I was watching a streamer yesterday um, who runs a um, he runs a, a production company out of LA. And um, I realized that I've known him for uh, since 2018 and i think we are relatively new um i don't want to say friends acquaintances uh and then i realized that i've i've known him since 2018 he in fact streamed his wedding um and i think of that as being something that is quite recent i look back on on that day fondly it was nice that that he and his his wife chose to share that with us um, and he pointed out that his five-year anniversary is coming up in just a couple of weeks' time. And I can't believe that it's been five years we had that weekend of streaming the wedding. So the the days do go quickly. The years do go quickly. Um, and who knows, we probably will still be here. We probably will still be here. Uh, Tim has said in. Good morning to you, Tim. Tim, in case you don't know, is a longtime friend of the show. He was my very first guest. Um during my very first show and thanks to the technical issues that we had with that show he was then also my very third guest <laughs> when we redid um that episode so he has been with us here on saturday morning breakfast right since the beginning and he has texted in to say that time is a construct that is very true that is very true time is a weird thing isn't it because people talk about traveling t in time um and i i don't actually understand what that means quite frankly, because time is something that we have just kind of made up. Years are something that we have made up. We've just decided that they exist based on how long it takes for the earth to go around the sun. We've just decided that that's important. The fact that we break our day up into 24 hours, we have just decided is important. The Romans had a 10-day week. The fact that we've reduced that down to a seven-day week and seem to think that that is some kind of universal, important thing is very bizarre. It is a construct. It is something that we have decided, and yet we like to talk about it as if it's natural. We like to talk about it as if there are seven days in a week, when that is just something that we have decided. There are 52 weeks in the year, and that's just something that we have decided. 
it's a bit like when France experimented with metric time. Um, that was always quite a mind-blowing thing for me when I learned about it. Um, I wasn't planning on talking about this today, so I am just kind of double-checking my facts before I talk to you about it. I think the idea was that things broke down into decaseconds, hectoseconds, kiloseconds, megaseconds, and gigaseconds, I believe. And the decasecond was 0.17 of our current minutes. A hectosecond was 1.67 minutes, so 1 minute 40 seconds of our current minutes. A kilosecond was 16 minutes and 40 seconds of our current minutes. Uh, a megasecond was 11 days, 13 hours, 46 minutes and 40 seconds. And a gigasecond was 31 days, uh, 31 years, 252 days, 1 hour, 46 minutes and 40 seconds. Um, and I believe is still in use. Um, I'm not sure where, I don't know kind of what specific domains still use metric time. Um, but I know that lots of science and technology, uh, domains still use, um, still use metric prefixes, uh, for their time. But of course, the, the French, um, the French diplomat Charles-Maurice de Telleran Perigord proposed this idea that um, the base unit of length for metric time should be the length of a pendulum within a one second period, which was measured at sea level on the what he termed the 45th parallel. Um, Again, I don't understand the physics of it enough to know why that's a good base, but it seems to me that that was just something that Charles-Maurice came up with, um, that he decided. So then the uh, French Academy of Sciences developed this commission of weights and measures to develop the metric time system. Um, it rejected the seconds pendulum um, because the second of time was an arbitrary period rather than a decimal fractional fraction of a natural unit. So it seems that even the uh, Commission of Weights and Measures realised that it was kind of arbitrary and made up by Charles-Maurice. So instead what they did was they defined the fundamental unit of, of length of time as a length from the Paris meridian between the equator and the North Pole. So they then um, enacted this decimal time as part of their new Republican calendar. Um, in 1791, Louis Berthaud was commissioned to manufacture a decimal clock displaying the units. Um, Joseph-Louis Lagrange in 1794 proposed the day as the base unit of time with divisions that were called the décisions and the centijour, so separating the day up into tenths and hundredths, and the idea that there were four décisions and five centijours that were represented as four comma five, or four slash five, or just four five. Ultimately, Ultimately, the French moved back out of decimal time um, 
sorry, out of metric time and came back to decimal time, I suppose, the kind of unit of time that we currently use. But it does just go to show in that very quick um, kind of lowdown that time is a construct. Time is fictitious. Time can be what, <clears throat> excuse me, time can be whatever we decide it to be. And it is really only something that we agree on or that we have agreed on in order to make life a little bit easier for ourselves. So if we take it all a bit too seriously, we should just remind ourselves that it is fictitious. It is a construct, like so many things that we take seriously. And we need to figure out exactly where our priorities ought to be. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Telegraph reported this week on calls from some academics for schools to ban smartphones. The article refers to devices as extremely dangerous over fears that they damage cognitive ability. The research by academics in Australia suggests that phones can be hazardous to children as they have a negative effect on learning, social skills and mental health. Dr Mark Williams, an honorary professor of cognitive neuroscience at Macquarie University in Sydney is quoted as saying that having a phone in a pocket or bag decreases working memory capacity and that this means children don't learn as well. He goes on to say that there are zero benefits to smartphones in schools. Dr Williams went on to add that other research studies have shown that smartphones also link to causes of depression, anxiety and body dysmorphia. In Spain, phones have been banned from schools in some regions since 2015. University of Valencia academics found that pupils' test scores in some core subjects improved. In the USA, researchers at an Ohio hospital found that screen time led to lower brain functioning, and a study in Malaysia published in 2020 found that the presence of a smartphone decreased the ability of undergraduates to accurately recall information. The current Department for Education and Advice in England is that head teachers are best placed to make decisions about phones and their use in school. The value of learning a foreign language is often discussed in schools, but in Germany there have been calls for primary schools to scrap English lessons. 
the president of the German Teachers Association, has said that schools should focus on German reading and maths instead. His remarks come as German students scored lower than their peers in other countries in the International Primary School Reading Survey. Heinz-Peter Meidinger told German broadcasters that focusing on English was a wrong priority and that more attention should be paid to reading skills, writing skills and arithmetic. The BBC reports that MPs have launched an inquiry into Ofsted school inspections, looking at how useful they are to parents, governors and schools in England. Education Select Committee Chairman Robin Walker said Ofsted had an important role, but that there had been a groundswell of criticism in recent months. Ofsted itself has said it welcomed the inquiry, but that it had already made changes. MPs will consider how inspections affect the workload and well-being of school staff and pupils, and what contribution its reports make to helping schools improve. The issues likely to be discussed are the current system of awarding one overall grade to a school, and whether it is right to deem a school inadequate if inspectors raise concerns about child welfare. Parents, school governors, teachers and unions will be able to submit evidence alongside the government and Ofsted itself. Ofsted have already made changes, particularly to the complaints process, but the NAHT's Paul Whiteman said the changes didn't go far enough. Finally, in the West Midlands, the BBC reports that a 91-year-old former teacher is helping children develop their literacy skills from a living room. Diane Idols has five pupils she reads with over an online platform aimed at helping children progress with reading. She said the volunteering work had filled a huge hole in her life after the death of her husband. Mrs Idols volunteers through the Bookmark Reading Charity, which matches trained volunteers with primary children struggling with reading. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to answer the question we all want to know. What is the best presentation software? I do promise to give you an answer this week after leaving you on a cliffhanger, but... First, a quick recap for those who missed last week or fast-forwarded me. Considering most lessons delivered in a classroom contain some sort of presentation, it's possible that our students are facing up to a thousand presentations a year. This isn't a bad thing as we are presenting information and that's what the software is designed to do. However, like a display you spend ages on, how long does it take before it stops being noticed? Do we really know what experience a pupil gets through a typical week in school? Are they being engaged or do they know how to look like they are listening? Don't worry, there is no no way I'm going to mention slants here if you're thinking that is where I was going next. The answer is there is no best presentation software. As I've already mentioned, there are lots of free and paid for presentation apps out there. The key to success is which we choose. This is where a lot of people go wrong. They ask someone else's opinion. What works for one may not work for another. The choice you make depends on two key words, purpose and audience. When you choose the method of presentation for a lesson, you need to be thinking about the best way to grab focus. In the end, our job is to encourage long-term remembering. So if the lesson is about remembering short text-based facts and you have powerful images that back up what you're saying, a looping PowerPoint presentation or equivalent may do the job. Do you want to embed a lot of web links and videos? Why not take a look at Wakelet? 
a free way to collect web links together and share them. You can present with it and then hand the link off for self-discovery. Most app developers today aim to make their apps intuitive, so changing things around shouldn't be too hard for you to get to grips with. And you may just find engagement rises, and in the end, that's what it's all about. What do you do to engage pupils? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. There was a graph, there was a graph um, tweeted out by the TES magazine a couple of days ago, the 21st of June, um, and it's a graph from the Health Behaviour in School-Aged Children World Health Organization Collaborative Cross-National Study. Um, it's from the findings from the HS. Uh, sorry, the HBSC 2022 survey in Scotland, uh, titled Proportion of Pupils Who Like School a Lot. I'm sure many of us have seen it. If you haven't, um, I will tweet it out as soon as I have finished my little spiel about it, because um, I want to be able to see it on Twitter while I am talking about it. Um, and there is something, there are a few very striking things here. So what the graph shows is that overall, between 1990 and 2022, there has been a drop in the number of students who uh, say that they like school a lot. So we have had in girls a drop from um, 33% in 1990 down to 15% in 2022. Uh, in boys, we have had a drop from 23% in 1990 to 18% in 2022. Um, so this does mark, and this was kind of the headline that um, the TES tweet went with, we have got for the first time since this survey was done in 1990, boys, uh, the boys being more enthusiastic about school. This idea that boys are more um, are more sorry, my brain went blank there for a second. The boys enjoy school more than girls do. And I think that is a very positive spin um, to put on this chart. What it doesn't take into account, though, is the fact that we have had this sharp decline in how many girls are saying that they like school a lot, from 27% in 2018 down to just 15 in 2022, just four years later. Um, what is interesting, what I have seen while looking at some of the retweets, some of the quote tweets, some of the commentary on this, is that a lot of people are putting this down to COVID. And there is this idea, once again, that kids did not enjoy their online learning experience. Um, and that even though we've been told in schools that everything is now back to normal, we are dealing with the fallout of the online learning experience. And that because kids didn't enjoy the distance learning, they have come back into school not being enthusiastic about it. However... I would like to pop a different spin on this, and I've got no nothing to back up this thought other than my own opinion. 
Um, but that's what the show is for, so that I can voice my opinion. I wonder whether the inverse is true. Um, and I wonder whether we had this opportunity during distance learning to make our lessons engaging, to make our lessons interesting, to, to make the most of the online learning opportunities that we were forced into, and we did. And we made our lessons fun. We made our lessons deliberately interactive. We put a lot of thought and focus into those lessons because we knew that for a lot of our students, that would be the only interaction they would get outside of their family. And now we've come back into school and everything is, in air quotes, back to normal. And our students are beginning to realize that actually being in school isn't as fun as it could be. Education isn't as fun as it could be because we have shown them what education can be like. We have shown them what can be done when they are allowed online. We have shown them that actually they can be educated and have the TV on in the background, that they can be educated and listen to music, that they can be educated in their own time. You know, I'm aware of some teachers who struggled to juggle live online teaching with their family commitments and so recorded videos that their students could access. I know in my school we were encouraged to do that um, if we needed to, and we were encouraged to record our live lessons so that students who weren't able to join us live for any reason, perhaps they had COVID, um, perhaps they had family members who had COVID, perhaps there was only one device and siblings were having to take it in turns, but they could access our lesson when they wanted to, which meant that we were able to fit their schedule. Now, we know how important the teenage schedule is because we keep being told, it keeps being floated, that we should change the timing of the school day. How often have we heard people proposing that we should start at 10? and go on until later, because the teenagers do actually need the sleep that they struggle to get. You know, the reason that they stay in bed at the weekend until one o'clock or two o'clock is because they're catching up on all the sleep that they didn't get during the week. And it's quite interesting that we are being told that we just need to delay the start of the school day instead of giving our students the opportunity to learn when it is best suited for them that we are still being told that being in school, that having them all together in the same place and getting them to do the same thing synchronously is better than giving them the opportunity to learn at a time that is right for them. So I wonder, I wonder if the proportion, the fall in proportion, specifically between 2018 and 2022, isn't because they were put off of learning during COVID, but because they realised during COVID exactly how many learning opportunities there are and that learning can be tailored to them, learning can be more individual. And now they've had to come back into school where it is less tailored, it is less individual because they are working to our schedule. I would be interested, I don't know. If I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, and distance learning is not as effective as I believe it to be, 
and that the kids did not enjoy distance learning as much as I've heard from my students that they did, I will hold my hands up and say, okay, I am wrong, we need to work on that. But I think a little bit more data is needed. I think a little bit more, a few more conversations need to be had so that we can figure out exactly what has happened over the last four years that has turned these kids off of teaching, uh, off of learning. The other thing that we need to look at is the fact that we are saying that this is a massive drop between 1990 and 2022, and we're concerned about this drop. We're concerned about this drop from 33% of girls down to 15% and 23% of boys down to 18%, saying that they like school a lot. But why are we not concerned that our starting points in 1990 were only 33% and 23%. Why do we accept as a given that kids don't like school? Why do we just roll with that? Why are we okay with that? Why are we okay with the idea of our children having to spend a fairly significant proportion of their day a third of their day in a place that they don't particularly like? Why are we not seeking to rectify that instead of worrying about how far it's dropped? Because, you know, yes, the fact that we are now down to 15% of girls and 18% of boys saying that they like school a lot, that is a concern. That is a concern because it is much lower than it was 30 years ago but it's always been low and we don't seem to be doing anything to change that. I'm not saying, of course, that we are going to get all children to like school. Children don't like being told what to do. Children don't like a, children don't like a broad curriculum because they just want to learn about things that they are interested in. Children don't want to do homework. They don't want to be in trouble for breaking the rules. You know, there are lots of things about the institution of school that, of course, they are not going to like. In the same way that people don't like the institution of many things. So we're not going to get 100% of children saying that they like school a lot. But I do think we should be concerned that we have got so few children saying that like that they like school a lot and that we have just kind of accepted that this is the way it is that we kind of go along with the thinking of oh well you know of course kids don't like school why not and why don't we change it when people say oh i don't like my job the the answer to that is always oh okay well have you thought about getting another job But children don't have that option. They might be able to move to a different school. But if they are put off of school, then that change isn't necessarily going to make a difference. In the same way as an adult saying, oh, I don't like working. You could change your job, but you're still having to go to work. So we need to look at the culture. We need to look at the culture of schools that children are not responding to. And we need to change what we can. As a profession, we need to stop being so scared of change. 
because as it is, we are losing this battle because our battle is to make sure that children learn, to make sure that children understand, and in my opinion, to foster lifelong learning. Because we know, as adults, you don't really appreciate your learning until you're an adult. You don't really look back fondly on your school days and think about all the cool stuff that you learned until you are that little bit older. And it's when you are that little bit older that you can start to learn for the sake of learning, to learn for pleasure. But if that's not instilled in you as a child, if that's not given to you at a young age, you're not going to want to. And with all the options we have of different types of qualification, different types of degrees, in-person, long-distance, hybrid, there are so many things as adults we can do. Go to the library and check out a non-fiction book. Watch YouTube videos, not just on Change a Plug, but also on Cleopatra, because it's interesting. And we need to make sure that we are instilling that love of learning, that desire for knowledge in our kids. And if they associate school with knowledge, and they associate school with not liking where they are, they're going to associate knowledge and learning with not liking where they are, they're not going to want to learn as adults. And we are then depriving them of something that is so Tim has texted in again. Thank you very much, Tim. I really, really appreciate um, your interaction with the show. He has said, I feel very strongly that we've squandered opportunities to adopt hybrid and virtual models permanently, not just in education, but across society too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was thinking this about um, when office people started to go back into the office. Um, and quite frankly, I didn't understand why. Now, I've said on the show before, I've never had an office job. Um, I was a paperboy, then I was an actor, and then I was a teacher. So I've never, I've never worked in an office. But I don't understand, from what I know of offices, I don't understand why a lot of what is done in an office can't be done from home. And I don't understand why there was this sudden push to get people back into the office. I know that lots of people like it. I know that lots of people like that socialization. But there did seem to be this big a, a push, a, a wave of getting people back into an office space as soon as possible. And I couldn't see any positives to it. All I saw were these people now having to go back to commuting, to go back to wearing uncomfortable clothes, to go back to spending their lunch breaks kind of wasting time, when before they had been able to put on a load of washing before they logged in for the day because they didn't have to commute. They were able to spend their lunch times prepping their evening meal. I just saw lots of people, particularly once um, lockdown restrictions eased and office workers didn't go back into the office straight away, I saw lots of people having a lot more disposable time. Because suddenly all of the trapped time that you don't get paid for, but you have to kind of sacrifice in order to make your job work, that was theirs again. And I don't actually understand what has been gained 
by giving up that time. So I think I think you're right. I think we have wasted an opportunity for increased productivity, for increased mental health benefits, for increased physical health benefits, just in an urgency to, again, in inverted commas, get back to normal. And it makes me wonder for whom was normal working and why did they get the priority? Because I realized during the lockdown that normal doesn't work for me. I was much happier during the lockdown than I have been since. I'm very open on the show about my struggles with anxiety, my struggles with depression. Um, they are not struggles that incapacitate me for long stretches of time. I am very lucky in that way. They do incapacitate me occasionally. Um, but I am functioning, um, to use a term that I dislike. But I did notice that my underlying anxiety and my underlying depression were gone pretty much during the lockdowns, during distance learning. And then when everything went back to normal, they came back in full force to the extent that it was only when I, um, when everything opened back up again, that I realized that I needed to seek medical treatment for my depression and anxiety, because I had realized that actually what was my default, that kind of feeling of dread, all of those, all of those feelings, um, shouldn't be and don't have to be. I kind of realized that there was something wrong because the way society is set up doesn't work for me. And it doesn't work for lots of people. And there isn't always the option to bend your life to a way that works for you. And so I think particularly as we have become more individualized as a society. I'm really sorry, everybody. This is not the soapbox I intended to be on today. <laughs> but as, as we've individualized as a society, and you know we're, we're telling our students that they as individuals are important, what they want to do is important. We're kind of caveating that with, it's important so long as you fit in to what is normal. And if you don't fit into what is normal, you kind of just have to suffer through. And again, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the message that I want to be giving to children. I'm not saying that because I do better working from home and when the streets are quieter, that we should be in permanent lockdown because that would be hypocritical of me. Um, to sit here and say that it's wrong for us to be forced back out into the world and so we should force everybody to stay in. What I am saying, there does need to be a bit more flexibility in all areas of life. And I am talking about the workforce, but I'm also talking about learning. We are very lucky in the UK uh, that home education is possible in different areas of the UK it, there are different requirements for it. I know, for example, it is more difficult to home educate in Scotland than it is in England. 
but we do at least have that option. And I think that there should be more available for homeschooling families from schools, from teachers, so that children who maybe would thrive from being homeschooled because they have depression, because they have anxiety, because they just like to be at home and they could benefit from that. And then the children who like to be in school could benefit from being in school. We've got this idea that all children benefit from being in school, and that's just not true. Anyway, I think I need to get off this soapbox now um, because we're almost halfway through the show and I could probably keep talking about this forever and we would never get onto exit tickets, which is, of course, the point of today. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme is brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. I was having a chat with my friend Manuela midweek. Good morning, Manuela, if you are listening. I know that you wanted to listen. Uh, but I also know that you are teaching this morning, so you might be entrenched in your lesson. But I was talking to Manuela, who is a Spanish teacher in my school, and she asked me my opinion on exit tickets. And I realised that I didn't have one. And as you will have guessed by now, it's very rare for me to not have an opinion on something educational. Um, I think Manuela was quite disappointed that I didn't have an opinion. So that's kind of the point at which I decided to make today's show about exit tickets because I like to learn things for the show. Um, one of the reasons that, that I do this is to improve my own practice um, as much as hopefully to help you improve yours. So I, I've been thinking about exit tickets, I've been researching exit tickets, and we're just going to kind of, of chat about what I have found today. Now I've been thinking about why I didn't know about them. That was kind of my my first port of call. Why did I not have an opinion? Because ex exit tickets have been around for a while. They've been all the rage for a little while. I think they've come into fashion, gone out of fashion, and now seem to be coming back in, kind of based on what Manuela was telling me about a CPD that she had done last week, uh, or the beginning of this week. I'm sorry, I, I don't remember. Um, and so I was thinking about why they've kind of passed me by. And I think the reason is there. Uh, I think the reason is twofold. Um, I've never used them. It's never been something that I have done, um, and I wasn't trained in it. I don't think they were a thing when I trained, or it could be because of the way that I trained. Now, as 
longtime friends of the show will know, I trained primary. Um, I teach predominantly secondary these days, but I trained primary. And so, of course, in primary, the way the day is set up is ever so slightly different in that the kids don't exit as often. Um, they will exit to go out to time after I always did maths first thing in the morning. Um, then they would exit to go to lunch after English or whichever way around you're going to do it. And then they would exit at the end of the day. So we don't have as many exit points in primary, whereas in a secondary classroom, you have your your year group that you're teaching for a lesson or maybe a double lesson um, or a triple lesson, I suppose, if you're very unlucky. Uh, not because it would be a pain to have three consecutive lessons for with a class, but because if you have got three lessons with a class, that's probably your whole week's worth of lessons in one day. And so it's then a week until you see them again, and they will have forgotten everything. Um, and so they they exit your lesson much more frequently. So maybe it were a thing um, when I trained, and just because of the way that I trained, we, we didn't use them. Um, but it's certainly not something that I've ever really come across in my practice. And, and the reason that this came up, and I'm sure that Manuela won't mind me me saying this, um, although I apologise if you do, um, and if you are listening to this and want me to say this bit out, I, I will. Um, Manuela's had two observations in which she has used exit tickets and um, had two very different outcomes from that. One of her observers really liked the idea, loved the exit tickets that she loved the the activity that went with them the other observer didn't like the exit tickets didn't like the time spent on them didn't understand what the point was which again just to go off on a little bit of a tangent is exactly why using observation for performance management doesn't work because all you get when you're observed is one teacher's um, subjective opinion on your uh, performance on that day. When I was acting regularly and when I've had fiction books published, I've been told by people never read the reviews. Never read the reviews of your acting performances. I was told that by a director very early in my career. And never read the reviews of your books. I was told that by a publisher. Because you will always focus on the negative ones and you will never be able to please everybody. And actually what other people think of your work is really none of your business because you can't control other people respond to you. And so I do find it odd that in, in most professions that are outward facing, in most performance professions, you are told not to pay very much attention to reviews. But in teaching, we have reviews forced on us by our kids because they will very happily tell us when they've hated a lesson. And as part of our performance management cycle. But anyway, that's by the by. That's by the by. So she had two very different experiences with what was pretty much the exact same um, activity. And that was kind of how this, this conversation came up. So 
already just off the bat what i knew about exit tickets is that they were something that had cycled through fashion and that they were divisive and that was about all that i knew about them um so i then started to kind of do one of my shallow dives into the exit ticket um and teach toolkit has been quite a nice uh punchy overview um it says use this technique to show you what students are thinking and what they have learned at the end of the lesson before students leave for recess, lunch, the end of the day, their next class, or are transitioning to another subject area, they have to hand you a ticket filled out with an answer to a question, a solution to a problem, or a response to what they've learned. Exit tickets help you assess if students have caught what you've taught and plan for the next lesson or unit of instruction. So <clears throat> the way that I have seen exit tickets used um, is that they have been a post-it note on which children have written either an answer to a question that the teacher has posed or an answer to the general open-ended question, what have you learnt today? And those post-its were then handed in at the end of the lesson. So from my understanding, that's what an exit ticket is. Um, that kind of gels with what the teacher toolkit is saying an exit ticket is. So I'm kind of happy that I've understood that. I'm going to be honest and say that I don't understand the point. I don't understand the point. Um, and I'll, we'll come to why I don't understand the point in a couple of minutes time. But I went on a bit of a deeper exploration of exit tickets. Now that I was happy that I understood what one was, I trust the teacher toolkit um, implicitly, so I'm very happy that I understood what it was. I started to figure out how it was used. Again, the teacher toolkit has quite a nice step-by-step -step, um, article called How to Use on their exit ticket page. So step number one is create your exit ticket. Decide what you'd like to find out about students learning at the end of the lesson. Write a question or pose a problem on the exit ticket or post the question or problem for students to see. Okay, absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. So I suppose, let's say that in, um, in Chinese, I'm teaching stative verbs in case you're not sure, those are adjectives that work like verbs. And for my exit ticket, um, I'm going to ask them, what stative verb might you use to describe yourself? Give me one stative verb that you would use to describe yourself. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. Step two, uh, collect. Set a specific amount of time for students to complete the exit ticket. Stand at the door to collect the tickets as students leave the classroom. Students can also post their exit tickets in a designated place in the room before leaving and or transitioning. Okay, I've seen this done really, really well. Um, my friend and colleague Marine, who I've talked about on the show before, she has one of those um, dry erase sheets up on the wall of her classroom by her door so it's one of those it's kind of like a whiteboard but it's 
also sticky back plastic. So you've essentially just stuck a sheet of, of whiteboard material to your wall. Um, and I've seen her quite effectively have students both write on this as they leave the classroom and write on a post-it note and stick it to um, the, the material as they leave the classroom. So, so that's, you know, that's fine. Again, I'm on board so far. I understand so far. We've posed this problem. Give me one stative verb that you would use to describe yourself in Chinese and then stick it on my door. Give me the post-it, write it on this sheet of whiteboard, whatever, as you leave the classroom. Okay. Still absolutely fine. Um, then step three, clarify. Examine the tickets carefully. Depending on your purpose, it might be helpful to sort the tickets into piles. For example, tickets that demonstrate students have grasped the content, tickets that show that students don't understand, and tickets that you aren't sure about. Consider starting the next lesson with interesting ticket responses or with a graph or chart that highlights the common responses. So I'm going to look at all these post-its that I've got that have got stative verbs written on them. And I'm going to go, okay, my students can all name a stative verb, fine, or they can all write the Chinese character correctly, fine. Or, oh, they've all written tall. So is that the only stative verb they can remember? Or is that the only stative verb that they can spell? Is this the only one where they can write the hanser, the Chinese character, in the correct order? Okay. But then, I'm not sure what I've learned from that. So, may, I mean, maybe my question was wrong. Maybe asking them to write just one stative verb uh, that would describe themselves on a post-it isn't the best way to do this. Maybe I should have asked them to do two or three because that would have given me a broader range. If my learning objective had been to be able to use stative verbs to describe myself and they've written one stative verb on their exit ticket, I could superficially say, yes, I've achieved my objective. But if I were to look deeper into it and I were to look at the patterns, then I might start be able, being able to say, oh, my whole class en masse can only actually do one. Or my higher retainers can do this one that has got more strokes, but actually it's a less sophisticated piece of vocabulary than this one that has got strokes in the character that my lower retainers are using. And I need to make sure that I point that out to my higher retainers so that they make use of it. So, okay, that's fine. But again, that's a lot of assumptions that I'm making. These are just kind of ideas that I'm making up based on one character, one word that a student has written. So to me, at the moment, based on my understanding, it's not giving me useful enough data in order to make any kind of useful conclusions in order to do anything useful with these exit tickets at all. I've just got these kind of piles of tickets now on my desk. And I'm wondering why that is more useful than if I had given my students 10 minutes and said, write me a 
40 character description of yourself using as many of the static verbs as you can. Surely that would have given me a better understanding as to whether the kids have remembered that when you write tall in Chinese, you don't need to write am as well because the verb is just tall. So to me right now, they are seeming a little bit superficial. They are seeming a little bit pointless, quite honestly. Um, the EEF toolkit in discussing mastery learning says that learning should be broken down into uh, units with clearly specified objectives which are pursued until they are achieved. So, okay, my mastery learning lesson is about learning stative verbs in Chinese, and we're going to keep doing this until my students can do it. That's fine. Yes, I, I get that. Repetition is really good. Not moving on until the students understand is really good. Of course, there are then lots of conversations to be had at how you know whether a student is understood. At what point should you just um, cut your losses, move on and then come back to a concept? But that's all right. We'll we'll stick with with pursuing uh, an objective until it's achieved. Um, setting clear objectives and providing feedback, a high level of success, at least 80% should be required before pupils move on. Again, fine, I need to get my students to do something in order to provide feedback. And so I'm now seeing where the exit tickets are beginning to come in because they are something on which I can give feedback. And then feedback redirects or refocuses either the teacher's or the learner's actions to achieve a goal by aligning effort and activity with an outcome. So I've got my student who has written on her post-it the Chinese word tall, and that's a 100% success rate. But based on that exit ticket, I think I can move on. Oh, see, my cat's got very, my cat has very strong opinions on exit tickets, clearly. Yes, I know. But just because a student can write one stative verb doesn't mean that she can write a paragraph about herself using as many of them as possible. So I'm still not right now seeing how my exit ticket is a better assessment strategy than my paragraph would be, or my open-ended question. So in the Improving Teaching blog, uh, this is a post dated from 2016, um, it says, more fundamentally, exit tickets provide a straight answer to a simple question we should be desperate to answer each lesson. What did students learn? Now, there are a couple of things that I take issue with there. The first is the idea that I don't know. Because as a teacher, I am constantly watching my students. I am talking to my students. I am listening to my students. I'm looking over their shoulders to see what they're writing. I'm constantly assessing. 
I'm stopping my class and re-explaining if it's very obvious that they haven't got it. I'm calling individual kids over to my desk to re-explain it to them if it's clear to me that the rest of them have understood but this student hasn't. I don't actually understand why I'm waiting until the end of my lesson to do this piece of assessment. I don't understand why I'm waiting to the end of my lesson to try and figure out what they have learned. My second issue with this idea is this the, the implication that regurgitating something that they have remembered from five minutes ago is learning and not remembering and regurgitating. Because of course, learning, we know, is that switch from the short-term memory into the long-term memory. It's the process by which the knowledge is absolved, uh, absorbed, sorry, it's the, the process by which knowledge is retained. So actually, even if my students in my exit ticket can write down seven stative verbs from that lesson, and I could look at that ticket and go, yes, they've learned their stative verbs. If they come back three days later and can't do that, they can't name any of the stative verbs, or they can only name one or two, I can't actually say that they've learned them. I can't say that that exit ticket shows me that they've learned them. I can say that it showed me that they've remembered them from that short period before, but not enough time had passed actual learning to take place so i guess the exit tickets are showing me that they have paid attention in the lesson which is important as i point out to my year 10s this week if you check your snapchat while i'm teaching just one vocabulary and you do that in every lesson so that's that's three of vocabulary a week that you miss over a school year let's say that's 90 pieces of vocabulary over a three-year GCSE course that's 270 pieces of vocabulary that you would miss just by missing one thing each lesson so obviously it is important for them to pay attention it is important for them to take in the stuff as we are saying it to them but we shouldn't fall into the trap of assuming that just because they remember something at the end of the lesson, just because they remember something five minutes after you've said it, that they've learnt it. Because that's not the same thing. And I think sometimes as teachers, we are so desperate to have our teaching validated, we are so desperate to feel like we have made a difference, we will cling on to whether they've remembered something just from within that hour lesson period in order for us well to say to ourselves, yes, I did a good job today. So at the moment, the exit ticket actually isn't telling me anything other than whether I was able in that hour to give students enough vocabulary to remember one thing. So as a, as a concept right now, as an activity, I am not seeing any benefit. What was interesting, what I did quite like, was again, in the Improving Teacher blog, 
uh, written by Harry Fletcher Wood. I'm sorry, Harry, that I didn't, uh, I didn't credit you when I started reading from your blog. Um, Harry tells us of Jay Altman, who himself is describing a lesson taught by a, uh, a maths teacher in Boston. So this is now like a fourth-hand story that you're hearing. Uh, but this, this teacher got their students to write their exit tickets. They left. The teacher was able to examine those exit tickets and call those kids back into his classroom that afternoon in order to rectify any misconceptions that were on the exit ticket. So we've got immediate feedback and immediate response to feedback. Now, in this case, I understand the point. Because you were able to look at the exit ticket, you were able to look at the post-it note, whatever it might be, really, really quickly. Say, oh, okay, no, Johnny has not understood my stative verb because he's still written, I am, am tall. So let me just call him back into my classroom this afternoon, five minutes at lunchtime, and I'll explain it again. And that's really good. That is really good because what you are able to do is undo the misconception or rectify the, the forgotten learning before any of the misconceptions have had time to cement themselves. Before the learning process has happened, before that switch from short-term to long-term memory and embeds, cements incorrect learning. So for me, that's really helpful. But it also shows the issue of, if I can't act on this feedback immediately, was there any point to it? Or am I now just going to be worried that Johnny hasn't shown me that he can use stative verbs properly, and I'm going to have to wait until he comes back into my classroom in two days' time to rectify this, because I can't see him this afternoon because I've got a meeting and then he's got detention. And then tomorrow, his class are out on a trip all day, so I can't get him to pop in and see me then. And then at break time the day after that, he just doesn't want to come and see me. And that's his right because it's his break time. And so by the time I actually next have an opportunity, Johnny, again, it is, in fact, my next lesson. So I think if we're going to go with this idea that exit tickets are helpful for immediate feedback and, and rectification of forgotten or misinterpreted learning, then time needs to be built into the school day for that feedback to be given. And I think for me, that's the sticking point. Because if I am not able to give that feedback immediately, then actually understanding the kind of short-term retention from my one lesson in my unit isn't going to tell me very much. Versus if I had Johnny write a paragraph about himself, and then I could sit down and I've got more data to analyze, I've got more to look at in terms of what he has and has not understood, and then I can rectify it. So, I think if you are in a school where you can have an immediate feedback loop and sort of even in a US school, you know, the ability to get a student in that afternoon to rectify uh, forgotten learning 
is is rare but schools in the us in my experience they have um kind of daily timetables so you pretty much see the same classes every single day even at secondary level and so you know you've got your exit ticket from johnny on tuesday he comes into your class on Wednesday, 24 hours later, because it's always the same period that he comes in, and you can rectify it then. Whereas, you know, in my case, let's say that I'm seeing my year 10s on Monday, I take the exit ticket, but they then don't come back into my classroom until Friday. That's a much longer period of time for me to be able to rectify what I'm perceiving as their mistake. So... Again, I'm not particularly right now seeing a benefit of the exit ticket as a strategy in and of itself. Um, and for me, that's always the, the sticking point. It's like, whenever you are choosing an activity to do, why am I doing it? Why am I taking five minutes, five precious minutes out of my lesson? Because we all complain about not having enough time in our lessons. Why am I taking five minutes out of my lesson to do this? How does this help me to improve student learning? What am I doing with my exit tickets? Because if I'm just doing them because exit tickets are a bit of a fad, and I want to, to state on Twitter that I'm doing the same as everybody else because everybody else thinks they're brilliant, but then I just take them in, I have a look at them and I put them in and recycling. What was the point? That didn't actually, the, the kids didn't learn anything from completing it. I didn't learn anything from them completing it. What was the point? So another positive of exit tickets as, as the, the websites, the blogs are selling it to me is that they give you an end point for your lesson. And I do actually think that this is a good strategy. Plan your lesson from the end. When you are planning your lesson, you need to think about what is this student going to know when they leave versus when they came in? What is my ending point? And I suppose that's, that's like for any endeavour. Where am I trying to get to so that I know where I'm going to start? And I suppose if you use exit tickets then you are kind of forced to plan that end point because you know that your final activity is going to be the exit ticket and if you kind of know what your exit ticket question is going to be you can spend your whole lesson planning to teach the answer to that question and that is something that comes back around this fads in education, isn't it? Is having an overarching question for your lesson. Um, we're always either writing learning objectives or questions upon our whiteboard. And whichever one we're doing is just whichever one is in fashion right now. And I do think that that's a positive. I do. Because it, it's kind of like... It's kind of like teaching to the exam. I suppose, which we all know is, is a negative. But we also all know that students are going to sit exams. Exams have syllabi. Exams have very specific lists of what needs to be covered, what needs to be taught. And so we teach it. Start with the outcome and then work backwards. I suppose having your exit ticket as your outcome is a really good way 
um, particularly if you are relatively new as a teacher to, to being able to figure that out. But again, if you know what your outcome is going to be, do you actually need the exit ticket to prove that? If I know that my outcome is that I want my students to be able to use static verbs, do I need them to be able to write me one on a post-it note to prove it? Why is that better than doing a look it? I love look it. I get made fun of at school for using look it. Why is that better than getting them to write a paragraph, which is an exam skill that they also need to practice? Why is that better than mini whiteboards? And again, that's still not something I've got an answer to. This idea of why is it better? Because I've got my learning objective. I know what I want my students to do when they leave or what I want my students to be able to do when they leave. Why do they need to write that on a post-it note in order to prove it to me? The other thing that I find a bit confusing about exit tickets and that I think I've probably exemplified in my example, is that they always strike me as being very narrow. Because if we take my theoretical lesson about stative verbs, like I said, I've been making my students on their exit ticket write one stative verb, tall, short, thin, popular, whatever it might be. And all that shows me is that they've learned one word or they've remembered one word from my lesson. But if my lesson was an hour long, I'm going to have talked more than just one word. And, and actually, on the Improving Teacher blog, this is dealt with because it said a good exit ticket must include all aspects of the lesson, differentiate accurately between levels of understanding, be quick to answer and be quick to mark. So what I've now actually got is becoming less of an exit ticket, as I understand it, less of something really quick on a post-it that I can just have a look at, and more of an activity. This is now becoming a whole thing, because I've got to make sure that it covers everything that I've taught in my lesson. So in my lesson about stative verbs, it's now not just enough for me to ask the kids to be able to to write one, I've got to check whether they know the tone of the verb that they are writing. I've got to check whether they know not to put the verb to next to it, because the adjective is a verb of its own. I need to check whether they know their word order, because I will have taught that. I need to check whether they have remembered an intensifier, because that's quite important when we're using stative verbs. All of these little things that I've taught needs to be assessed. And again, I'm on board with this because this now gives me a much better understanding of whether Johnny's twin sister, Jenny, has um, understood stative verbs in my lesson. So, you know, I'm on top of that. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. But again, why am I asking for an exit ticket when I could be getting them to do a writing, when I could be getting them to do a reading comprehension, when I could be killing two birds with one stone and doing something that is going to be exam skills, as well as checking for vocabulary and grammar. And I think the answer here 
is that quick to mark thing. I just need to be able to look over it quickly and go, yep, they've understood that. But that brings me back round to my point earlier, where if I'm looking at something really quickly and I'm going, oh, okay, no, Jenny hasn't understood how this works. Why had I not spotted that sooner? Why had I not spotted that in my lesson when I was walking around, when I was talking to Jenny, when I was doing my whiteboard activities? So again, I'm still not entirely sure what I'm learning from my exit ticket that I didn't already know. I'm also not sure if I want to mark quickly. I think if I'm going to take the time to read something that a student has done, then I want to be able to give thorough feedback on it. I want to be able to, to sit down and talk properly with the student about what they have done, what they have done right and what they've done wrong. I'm also not sure how I feel about the idea of it being quick to answer. Because if something is going to be quick to answer, to me that suggests it needs to be a closed factual question. Because it needs something that is that they don't need time to process. So even something like, uh, please can you write me one static verb that you remember from today's lesson, that's not going to be very quick because they've got to sit and they've got to think and they've got to remember what the verb is and they've got to remember how to spell it or in Chinese how to write the strokes. They're going to panic and their mind is going to go blank for a second. So I'm not actually sure how quick an exit ticket can be. And I've seen this done where people have done exit tickets kind of in person where the teacher stood at the door and they've said as the students are leaving, tell me one word that you remember from today. And I've watched the students stumble as they stand there. And I've watched the students go, um, er, hold on a second. Oh, what was it again? And that's not quick. That's just putting the students on the spot, possibly in front of other people, and forcing them to remember or forcing them to, to pretend that they are thinking by holding the floor with verbal fillers and hoping that you will let them go because they are wasting time. So, again, I am not sure where we are going with the exit tickets. I am not sure what value they are providing my lesson with other than being able to say that I'm doing them. There are some examples on the Improving Teacher website of um, tickets that are good. Um, so we have got a literature one uh, that says can explain the function of the prologue in Romeo and Juliet. Now, I like that question. That's a good English exam style question. Um, 
it would relate back to the objectives of the lesson. Today, we are learning the function of the prologue in Romeo and Juliet. I do not think that that is a quick question to answer, nor would it be a question to mark. There's a maths one that I think is possibly better. Five sevenths plus three sevenths, three fifths plus four sixths. So your learning objective is adding fractions. Your exit ticket has got those questions on it. Student does it really quickly. You have a look, you see if student can do it. So I think if you've got something that is very closed and very factual and possibly very skills based, then maybe they're a good thing. Let's say, for example, I were teaching Latin. And I was teaching uh, present tense verb conjugation. And my exit ticket was conjugate the verb amor amare to love for I, you singular, and he, she. Then they just wrote three things on their exit ticket. I could have a look and I could see that um, Sarah couldn't do it. She got her um, you singular and you plural mixed up, uh, whereas Bob could do it. And so that's okay. So Bob can move on in the next lesson. Sarah doesn't because she still needs a little bit of extra help. I can see that. I can see that. But I think it's very rare in any of our subjects for our entire lesson to be based around one skill, around one idea that can be effective and simply um, assessed via this exit ticket. Then you have to respond to it, of course. So then you have to try and figure out exactly what to do. Now that I know that Bob can do the present for those three people, but Sarah can't, I've now got the dilemma of, do I move on so that Bob continues to be stretched, but Sarah doesn't know how to do the present tense? Do I reteach the present tense because I can see that Sarah can't do it and she should have that knowledge. It's my job to make sure she can have that knowledge. And I'm going to do that while Bob sits there and gets bored. Or while I give Bob something else to do as a punishment for having learnt the stuff that I had already taught. Do I call Sarah in for one-to-one -one individual tuition? That's the most likely answer, isn't it? Let's be honest. But it depends how many of my students didn't understand. But again, did I not see that while I was going round, while they were filling in their workbooks? Did I not notice whether or not they were getting it? So, ultimately, I think for me, and what you've seen today is a kind of real-time me exploring um, a, a teaching technique. I think I've realised that I don't like exit tickets as a teaching tool. Because nothing that I have seen, either today or in the past couple of days while I've been researching them, have suggested to me that they improve anything. All that I can see 
is that I will have a wall covered in lovely pieces of writing and beautiful coloured post-it notes that would look great to a parent who was coming round or to a member of the SMT who was doing a learning walk or to an inspector who was coming in to expect student engagement in my lessons. Uh, you know, it would look beautiful, but it hasn't taught me anything and it didn't really do anything useful for my student. So I think, Manuela, if you are listening, in answer to your question, uh, what is my opinion on exit tickets? I don't like them because I don't see how they can improve my teaching or student learning. If we have any exit ticket experts in the audience, if we have anybody who is sitting there thinking, no, Darren, you are chatting rubbish. Come on, how can you not see how good this is? Please do, like I said, tweet me, um, at Mr. D. Lester, because uh, I really want to know. I really want to know what is good about exit tickets. I really want to know why people keep coming back to them. Because if they're good, I want to use them. Because I want to do all the good stuff. But I really, really, right now, don't see the point. Not when I've got so many other activities that can give me the same information and be more beneficial to the student completing it. And ultimately, that should always be the aim. What can I do that balances my ability to um, informally assess my students so that I know whether to move on while actually teaching my students something? And that's, a, that's another topic, isn't it? How to design activities that are linked to the exam skills, the essay writing skills, whatever it might be, those, those extra non-subject specific skills that my students need to learn. Um, that is another topic. That's a very important topic. Maybe we'll come back to that in August. Uh, but for me right now, exit tickets are not it. I'll be interested whether I come back in a year and decide that exit tickets are the best thing ever because I have changed my mind on different parts of practice before. I'm willing to change my mind on different parts of practice. Um, we will see. But for now, I will leave you on that. I hope that you have an amazing rest of the weekend. We have got some wonderful shows coming up once again over the rest of the weekend. Um, we have got uh, Graham this evening at 5 p.m. We've got the TTR Week in Review uh, live stream. That's tomorrow morning at 10. Uh, tomorrow at 1, we've got Nazia and Krupa, and then we've got Maud at 5. And then we have got Chris at 8 p.m. So a very, very packed weekend. One, two, three, four, five different shows you can watch between now and the end of the day on Sunday. Until next Saturday, I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope that the workload is kind to you and we are now a week closer to the summer. Just keep that in mind as we, as we come to this exhausting time of year. Thank you all for listening. I very much appreciate it. I will speak to you next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org.
We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.